Welcome to Helix Talk, a podcast presented by the Rosalind Franklin University College of Pharmacy. This podcast is produced by pharmacy faculty to supplement study material and provide relevant drug and professional topics. We're hoping that our real-life clinical pearls and discussions will help you stay up-to-date and improve your pharmacy knowledge. This is an educational production, copyright Rosalind Franklin University of Medicine and Science. This podcast contains general information for educational purposes only. This is not professional advice and should not be used in lieu of obtaining advice from a qualified healthcare provider. And now, on to the show. Welcome to Helix Talk, Episode 10. I'm your co-host, Dr. Kane. And I'm Dr. Schumann. And I'm Dr. Patel. And today we're talking about kind of a fun topic, our clinical pet peeves. Uh, these are things that kind of drive us crazy, and we really want to educate the audience to help avoid some of the mistakes that we commonly see in clinical practice. So I'll go ahead and get started with a few of my clinical pet peeves. Now, the first is uh, the idea of a sulfa allergy and whether that sulfa allergy cross-reacts with other things that have sulfonamide groups or moieties on them. It's a really good topic because I get this question in the clinic all the time. And I've heard at least one story of a, a new graduate pharmacist who started working at CVS or Walgreens and uh, had this drug alert pop up that said that this patient was filling Lasix or hydrochlorothiazide. They had a sulfa allergy listed in their profile, whether or not that was appropriate because, uh, you know, loop diuretics and thiazide-like diuretics do have sulfonamide moieties on them. And theoretically, that could, you know, cause a problem. So the, the new pharmacist calls up the, the physician who wrote the Lasix or the thiazide prescription and gets chewed out by the physician for the ridiculousness of his question. And it really is ridiculous. And a lot of the drug interaction tools that are built in into medical records when, you know, physicians try to put in the orders, these allergies do pop up. So if the patient profile contains that the patient has sulfa allergy, and if you're trying to put in, let's say, Lasix or hydrochlorothiazide, it might pop up as a, you know, sulfa allergy. But then at that point, that's where you need to exercise your clinical judgment and see if it's a really a true allergy or not. I think that's one of those, it's kind of that double-edged sort of, of using, of having access to some of these great databases. Sometimes they can give just enough information to raise a red flag, but without any kind of a context. And so you have to dig deeper lest you, you know, raise all the alarms at that point, and in this case, find yourself maybe at, at the, the mercy of a more experienced clinician. And what we're actually finding is that some of the computerized databases are getting a little bit better, so maybe they aren't triggered with things like Lasix and hydrochlorothiazide, but there's other drugs out there that do have this flag on them as a, a sulfa drug, so things like Celecoxib or Celebrex, which is a COX-2 inhibitor. Uh, sumatriptan or emetrex for migraines. And there's a lot more of these sulfonamide-containing drugs on the market that simply do not cross-react with uh, what we would consider a sulfa allergy, which is really saying a Bactrim allergy or a sulfamethoxazole allergy. So really, for me, the take-home point is that when you say you have a sulfa allergy, you're really saying that you have a, a sulfonamide antibiotic allergy. Non-antibiotics are not uh, relevant to that allergy. So that's my pet peeve number one. Pet peeve number two is quite related, and it's amiodarone with iodine allergy. If you actually pull up the package insert for amiodarone, you'll find that it says anyone with an iodine allergy is contraindicated to receive amiodarone. So this is the FDA-approved package insert for amiodarone, the drug that's been on the market for decades and decades. The package insert says you can't take this drug if you have an iodine allergy. 
Interesting. So from what I heard and from where I've grown up in India, um, the salt itself contains some iodine. So anything that you eat with salt, um, there is iodine. And if you're saying you're allergic to iodine, then that means you can't eat anything with salt either. Yeah, this is pretty akin to saying I'm allergic to water or I'm allergic to sodium. You know, iodine is a chemical element and it's not big enough to be antigenic. And it's something that everyone has in their body. So what really people are trying to say is that they're allergic to maybe iodine-containing substances that maybe had other things in them that caused an allergic reaction. Maybe a patient had uh, topical iodine as uh, to clean a wound or something like that and had kind of a hypersensitivity reaction. All of that's fine and great, but completely unrelated to having an iodine allergy. And actually, there was a study done showing that in over 200 patients that had a documented iodine allergy, when they received amiodarone, it was completely safe in those patients despite their iodine allergy. So we've got good retrospective data showing it's safe, and we have no prospective data saying that it's unsafe. We have good scientific basis saying that that warning in the package insert is kind of ridiculous. And finally, my last allergy-related pet peeve is penicillin allergy. And I think we've touched on this a little bit, but I think it's worth driving the point home that it's actually very safe to challenge a patient's penicillin allergy with a cephalosporin. So if we were to take 100 people, skin test them with a penicillin skin test, 80 to 90% of the people that said that they had a penicillin allergy would skin test negative. And this is a very uh, specific and sensitive test for penicillin allergy. So essentially that means 80 to 90% of people are liars or at least they thought they had an allergy, but they truly did not. And my biggest pet peeve is towards the healthcare providers who document penicillin allergy in patients' chart. They do not document the reaction. I cannot stress enough, and I'm sure Dr. Kane and Dr. Schumann can agree with me too, that whenever you identify a patient with um, penicillin allergy, you have to follow up with the question, what was the reaction? What happened when you took it? Document exactly what happened. There could be rash, which is a minor reaction, versus there could be anaphylaxis, which is a severe reaction, and that is the true allergy to penicillin. And then furthermore, one thing I've noticed is somebody who simply has a GI upset, especially in some of those, those older penicillin that if you, if you experience some nausea or even to the point of some, some diarrhea, that that gets labeled in there. And because somebody maybe in the software is looking for the best way to flag it, it goes in there as an, you know, an allergy with, again, without any context, without any definition. Dr. Patel, I couldn't agree with you more that with the growing role of uh, the pharmacist in performing things like medication histories and reconciliation and discharge counseling, Oftentimes, it's the pharmacist that's putting in things like allergies, and in my mind, I completely agree with you. It's irresponsible to uh, document an allergy without the reaction associated with that. There's almost no value in doing that. So of those patients that do have a positive, actually true allergy to penicillin, if we were to give them a cephalosporin, the cross-reactivity rate is quite low. So anywhere from 5 to 15%, depending on what resource you look at. And of that, it's about uh, less than 0.1% risk of anaphylaxis. So if you kind of combine all of the probabilities, so 20% probability that they're telling the truth, uh, let's say 10% probability of a cross-reactivity, and a 0.1% risk of anaphylaxis, your actual risk of a very severe reaction occurring in challenging a penicillin-allergic patient with a cephalosporin is about 0.002%, which is a very low risk. And uh, there's a lot to be gained from challenging, especially in very sick patients like in the ICU that I work in. Oftentimes, penicillin-allergic patients will be re-exposed to things like astreonam and aquinolone five, six, seven times, depending on how often they're in the hospital. 
it's almost a guarantee by the third or fourth admission they're going to have a quinolone resistant E. coli in their urine. They're going to have um, astreinam resistance, things like that. And if we can challenge those patients and document that we've challenged a penicillin allergy 